Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. We welcome you to Bite Into It, where we talk technology, computing, hacking, games, uh, all of the good stuff that you want to be spending your Wednesday night doing. Um, Tonight on the show, we have Mr. Dan Seven. Dan, how are you? I'm very well. Good evening, Warren. How are you? Doing pretty well. Um, Did you have a a good week in technology? Has it uh, lifted you up? Has it... Chewed you up, spat you out. Oh, all of the above. I think you know the the roller coaster of emotions that is this current situation we find ourselves in is being rolled in with the tech because it's the only way I'm communicating with people at the moment. So mm. I, th- I think you know the positives, the negatives. It's 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 a blamange. I think is it's not the right word, but I, I, I like the sound of it. A tech blamange. Um, <laughs> also, Rowena Murray. Rowena, how are you? Good evening. I, I too am swimming in a technological blamange. It's all very Groundhog Day, but, you know, all, all, all we can do is roll with it and <laughs> just live our lives. Have you have you kind of found anything to offset that at all? Are you kind of doing things differently with your tech just to kind of balance things out or, or any kind of survival tips for the kind of people who are locked away, like a, a, lot, of, uh, a lot of Melbourne? I like to hold myself up as the perfect example of what not to do. I've been getting absolutely, uh, you know, screen stressed. I discovered myself at 11pm still sitting at my computer just playing on Twitter, then couldn't sleep till 2am because I was playing, you know, some stupid game on my phone. So I'm doing it all wrong. It's terrible. Oh, that sounds brutal, man. Um, well, I, I think you've definitely earned yourself a couple of weeks on a beach somewhere um, when this is all over. Oh, um, I think so too. <laughs> maybe, maybe somewhere in Australia. Um, yeah. I'll be with you also. Uh, I'm Warren Davies. Um, we've got a really fun show uh, lined up for tonight. Um, we've got a, a couple of great interviews. We're having a chat uh, in just a few minutes with um, a person uh, using the codename Alex, uh, who's been up to, uh, I guess, a bit of mischief and shenanigans uh, on the internet. Um, most recently doing a, a good bit of digging uh, around one Tony Abbott um, and hilarious consequences ensue. Uh, we'll be having a chat with Alex uh, a little bit later in the show, or in not too far. Um, we're also uh, excited to have a chat to uh, author Joanna Leggett, uh, who's written uh, an interesting piece um, coming out in the October Australian Book Review on the Twitter mob. And I guess looking at... Um, not only some of the, the dynamics that we're familiar with on uh, a lot of the social networks, but um, in particular how, how women uh, are the, um, the target and recipients of um, some very specific types of harassment and, uh, and authors um, uh, uh, are not getting off uh, easy there either. So I'll have a chat with Joanna um, a bit later on. But before then, there is heaps of news to uh, dig into. Um, so we've just chosen some of the most interesting stuff to, to share with you. Um, Ro, there's a bit going on with um, Centrelink. Is, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So um, there's been a really big announcement this week that uh, Centrelink or MyGov IDEA will be basically rolling out a quite large-scale facial recognition program. So essentially, Australians will be using biometric facial recognition to access government services, which includes Medicare, Centrelink. Um, The theory is it's so that they can access these services remotely instead of physically going on site and handing over a billion points of ID. And it was announced as part of a $250 million piece of the 2020 federal budget. 
that said, though, that once you scratched under the surface of what this, you know, pretty straightforward announcement is, um, it's it, it's a bit messier. Um, this actually more than doubles the cost of the scheme um, that has actually previously been announced. This isn't actually a new announcement. It's just more money's getting thrown at it. Um, so there's been a lot of delays and, you know, Twitter, of course, lit up like a Christmas tree, worried about privacy concerns, but more than 1.6 million Australians are already using facial recognition to access around 70 different government services. So um, it's already well, you know, well underway. Um, it's an interesting... Uh, it's an interesting thing for the government to be focusing on because we already have uh, SMS codes, usernames, passwords and the MyGov ID app to actually be able to access these services um, online. Uh, one Twitter user, Asha Wolf, actually tweeted something about, you know, someone holding up their dog to scan its face for shits and giggles and then being locked out of their account for eternity. Um, but, you know, as always, there's issues where the legislation hasn't kept up with the technology. We don't have appropriate privacy privacy legislation in place to protect this biometric data and around the world there's actually calls to stop using the technology. Um, the University of Essex and the UK Police um, have done a study on it. The author of the study, Professor Fussy, has said there's a lack of leadership in the issue of facial recognition. Human rights standards need to be embedded from the start. Uh, Portland has banned facial recognition citywide in light of all the protests that are going on over there and Singapore is being slammed for bringing in a similar program. So um, it's a contentious one and it's going to impact a lot of Australians. So it'll be an interesting one to watch. Yeah, fascinating. Um, I also saw um, in a kind of related uh, way today that uh, Amazon are keen to use our palms for uh, making payments as well. Um, so um, I kind of I kind of feel um, two strong things about this stuff in that um, technically it's really interesting that we can do these things that, um, you know, it's always, I always get a kind of like a, a little bit of a bubble that we're in kind of like a, you know, a film starring Tom Cruise and, you know, everything's just kind of as it could be. Um, and then you kind of go, oh, that's absolutely awful, but um, that's the way that we access um, these services and it's it's giving away perhaps too much privacy. But, yeah, interesting. Mm -hmm. um, Dan, you, you've been following that uh, maybe now is the time that a lot of these tech adoptions can happen. You've got some news there. Absolutely. So I suppose it's, it's news that probably isn't going to come as too much of a shock to the people who have been kind of, you know, living in their bedrooms and, and houses as a result of COVID lockdowns for the last six months or so. But um, we now have some uh, verified research into it. Um, the global consultancy firm McKinsey has found that the COVID-19 pandemic has fast-tracked Australia's uh, technology adoption by as much as five years in the space of eight weeks. So the, on, we were on track to, you know, adopt a certain thing in the next five years and we did it in eight weeks. Um, obviously, things like streaming and social media have escalated dramatically. Um, I will point out my mum still doesn't text. Really? Nothing, nothing, nothing can accelerate that. Oh, well, look, look, I mean, you know what? That, that to me is endearing. I'm really enjoying that. Look, my, my dad only recently discovered emojis and I really wish he hadn't. Um, <laughs> but, but, and like, the, you know, lol does not mean lots of love. Let's just leave it there. Um, mm. But at the, at the same time, you know, we're... It's 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 by necessity we are interacting digitally a lot more, um, you know, socially through hangouts with friends, online fitness, um, as well as you know telemedicine. Actually, you know, getting in touch with, and you know that's still very much a fledgling thing. I think telemedicine has a long way to go, but um, I, I I know that there are you know there has definitely been an uptick in uh, cons consultations done via telehealth. Um, it's it's interesting that uh, despite 
the various, I suppose, uh, criticisms of NBN, let's just say NBN capability, in ter- uh, since everyone has gone online all at once, um, people are still reportingly, uh, overwhelmingly report reporting satisfaction with the experience. Now, I'm not sure that's, if that's to do with the connection or to do with the actual uh, quality of the uh, interactions that they're getting online. Um, one of the other things that the uh, report that McKinsey put together has said is uh, the key to long-term change will come from business and government spending in the tech space to improve existing infrastructure and services to maintain and grow momentum. And I think possibly we might be seeing that with the massive backflip on the NBN uh, fibre-to-the-premises policy of the current government. Let's not go into that because it will make me angry. Seems uh, seems impartial advice from McKinsey there. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, interesting. Um, another thing that um, did catch my eye uh, this week, um, uh, obviously... Um, the fire season in the Northern Hemisphere and um, uh, what's going on in California has been a concern for a lot of people. And, you know, potentially our fire season is, is going to be a bit earlier this year as well. So um, with that in mind, I was watching what's going on with uh, SpaceX. Um, they're actually rolling out a, uh, a new um, uh, space-based uh, internet service. Uh, it's called um, Starlink, Starlink Internet. And uh, I'm looking at a great photo right now, which is, is good for radio, but these... Um, 60 beautiful little satellites um, all lined up like um, uh, pairs in a pairs dispenser in the nose cone of a Falcon 9 rocket um, about to shoot out into space. They kind of look about as big as a maybe like a large photocopier um, but a little bit kind of, you know, a little bit more chrome, I'm mm-hmm. going to say. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, the interesting thing about this is um, going beyond sort of just sort of some simple user testing that they've been doing, um, SpaceX have opened up um, this particular service to a range of uh, emergency services, uh, I think at least in North America for now, but um, potentially around the world as well, um, to figure out uh, how good the, the coverage is for Starlink. Um so there's been reports from two services. Um, firefighters in California um, have been using it to test out if they can get better communication between tankers and, and other different types of vehicles, which is great. Um, you can imagine sort of out in remote areas and in sort of heavily treed, heavily hilled areas, um, you can get patchy you know, cell phone reception, I guess they would call, and, and radio reception. So uh, Starlink has been quite good. But also a, um, uh, I think there was a rescue going on um, a similar kind of uh, emergency service, and again, they reported that it was it was working pretty well. So, I think that's kind of cool. I think um, obviously, you know, with a, a hint of caution about sort of um, you know we don't need too many more sort of uh, Amazons and Googles kind of out there floating around, and SpaceX can you know, and uh, 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 Mr. Musk and his endeavours can sort of you know they aspire to, to to that kind of scale. So we should keep an eye on that, but. Um, yeah, I think it's great. I think anything that kind of helps put out fires and uh, help rescue people and so forth um, is worth having a look at, um, especially if we can regulate it and keep an eye on it. Absolutely. I, I, I mean, the, the, I suppose my immediate thing was when you said Star, Starlink, the first thing I thought was Skynet, but I'm sure it's not that bad. Um, no, they, they would have focused ripped the hell out of that. Yeah, no, I would no, hope it's, so. It's fine. It doesn't sound anything like it. No, no, de- definitely <laughs> not. And, you know, a network of satellites up there just hanging out waiting for us to, you know, tell them what to do. Nothing can go wrong. But, look, if, if, if they are only used as intended, then I'm, I'm all on board with it. 
Speaking of global disasters, Ro, you, you, you had one uh, that you were keeping an eye on. Um, was this yesterday? Is that right? Yes. Yeah, it was. So, you know, and, and you're exactly right. Speaking of world domination, Omega Tech behemoths, uh, yesterday morning, Australia, along with the rest of the world, experienced a major MS-365 outage. So normally, you know, it's a bit frustrating when a service goes down. It's not the end of the world. But, you know, Microsoft's aim has always been to do everything for everyone, which includes running Word, Excel, PowerPoint, emails, Teams, chats, file sharing, all the things. So it means that, particularly because it was at the start of the Australian workday, um, countless people were ground to a complete Hold. So turns out that Microsoft had rolled out an update which they promptly rolled back and didn't fix the problem. Um, it seems to be limping along now, but the jury is still out on exactly what happened and they're not coming clean on anything at this point. That explains it. I was wondering what was going on yesterday. <laughs> well, you weren't alone, I promise. Oh, man. <laughs> oh. Um, in other very entertaining news... Um, Hyundai has made an announcement this week. Um, they're developing an all-terrain, they're calling it a transformer class vehicle that has legs. So it's pushing forward with what they're calling a CES 2019 walking car concept. So the purpose of these particular vehicles is um, it's designed to be used in really challenging conditions that need extra manoeuvrability and precision. Um, you know, and Hyundai is also forging ahead with electric cars and flying vehicles. These are all far off in the future, but when projects like Ewan McGregor's Long Way Up documentary series, which is on at the moment, um, is putting electric SUVs from Rivian and electric bikes from Harley-Davidson into practical use to eat up literally tens of thousands of miles, we're starting to see more and more of these new technologies on the road. So it's going to be very, very interesting times. Oh, interesting you, is one thing, yeah. Would you grab one of these, Ro? Is this something you would have a, a go at? I would actually. Mm. I'm, de I'm definitely interested in the electric Harleys. Mm. I, I, I'd, I'd give the electric Harley a go, so long as it what? makes the sound electronically. I don't think like it does not. Oh no, that's half the fun of riding a bike is the noise. Yeah, well, I mean, my Harley, I've, I've got um, special pipes on mine called Screaming Eagles, so it absolutely sounds like a rocket going off. I've and heard your these, these are like. Down no. the road, so it's a very different experience. No, that's one step down from an electric scooter. I'm not on board with that at all. <laughs> Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts, and via the app. Hey, uh, if you've been feeling uh, like you're at a low creative ebb or you've got heaps of technology but not necessarily a lot to do with it, um, we do have the person you need to speak to or at least hear from um, and maybe it'll go no further. Uh, we are having a chat to um, uh, amateur slash professional mischief maker, um, Alex, um, and we're going to have a bit of chat about, first up, uh, some hijinks around Tony Abbott. But um, Alex, thanks for making time to hang out with us tonight. Hello, thanks for having me on the show today. I can't believe you called me an amateur mischief maker. <laughs> well, you, Fully it professional. Is, it, it is your right of reply. How would you, how would you best describe uh, your, your occupation in this context? Oh, um, in a professional context, my occupation is to hack the place that I work for exactly like a real hacker would, except then instead of selling the data on the dark web, we show them how we did it. So mm. metaphorically... The job is to commit crimes and then write very, very detailed confession letters. 
Nice. I, it's always interesting, um, depending on what time of day it is, we're either speaking to security experts or hackers. It just depends whether it's before or after five o'clock, I guess. <laughs> but uh, thanks for coming in. Um, so I, I guess like one of the first things to, to chat about is um, you had some interactions with, I guess, Tony Abbott's data. Could you sort of tell us how this whole thing started? And I guess it'd be interesting to talk through how, how one thing leads to another um, without giving, I guess, explicit instructions as to how young kiddies out there can can cause mischief. Um, oh, I'm okay for, for weaponizing the youth. I'm okay for giving explicit instructions about everything I did. It's not secret. Mm. Mm. Uh, it all started when one Sunday at 1 p.m. I was drinking from my water bottle at home legally. Mm. And then I got this message in a group chat saying, at Alex, can you hack this man? And the message was a link to an Instagram post made by some guy called Tony Abbott. And when I looked at the Instagram post, it was a picture of his uh, boarding pass and baggage receipt for a flight. So he's like taking a photo of the boarding pass and uh, he posted it on Instagram publicly. Why would, and, why, would, why would people do that is the first question, obviously. Oh, it's a totally like kind of reasonable thing to do, right? You want to kind of show that you're doing something you want to show that you're on a plane and so the boarding pass is the thing that shows that like i totally get why people do that and mm. turning up is far from the first person to have done this mm. i'm guilty of that i'm absolutely guilty of that after, I mean, after after reading your story though i'm never doing it again please continue yeah that's <laughs> all your listeners are about to have no excuse so then uh, the reason my friend is asking me can you hack this man it's not because i regularly commit online treason but it's because we had earlier been talking about these boarding passes and how something bad happens somehow if you post your boarding pass publicly some some person used it to commit identity fraud but we didn't really know how hmm. so then i looked at the i was like and i was kind of thinking oh wow it's a boarding pass i can something bad happen if that's posted like is this bad is this like is this a big deal or is it not a big deal i don't know because i don't really know how this works and i was really curious about it so and i wasn't really doing anything else that sunday afternoon and uh, so i decided to legally go and have a browse and try and figure out how it all worked. And so I didn't really know how boarding passes packing worked. So I like Googled it and it was like, oh, okay, the secret thing is in the barcode. And the thing in the barcode is the booking reference. That's like the six-digit code that lets you log into the airline website and manage your booking. It's usually all caps, you know the one. And I tried to like scan the picture of the barcode from the picture of the boarding pass, like with my phone, I was trying to scan my computer screen with my phone, but it didn't work because I think the picture was like too small or too blurry or something. So then I went into Photoshop and tried to like, you know, to turn up the contrast and zoom in the image and enhance and stuff. And I tried that for like a long time and it still didn't work. And then I eventually realized, even though I'd been staring at this image for like 15 minutes in Photoshop, that the booking reference is also just printed there, like in letters, it's like as well as in the barcode, but it's just you scan the barcode, it's just right there. So once I, you got that time back. Yeah, once I got that time back, I, I thought about all the time I spent going to university and how it was useless in this context. And then I uh, looked at the booking reference and I went to the website and all you need to log into the Qantas Managed Booking page is that booking reference number, which I now had. And also the second thing you need is your last name. I kind of thought the second thing would be a password or something, but it turns out the booking reference is the password and I need the last name. It was just Abbott. And so I just typed it in and it said, hello, welcome Mr. Abbott to your flight or something. It said, here's who you are. And I was like, hmm, this might be bad. But then I looked on the page and there wasn't really anything secret looking in there. It just said the time of the flight and his name and stuff. And it had like, uh, I had his frequent flyer number, which is I guess a little bit secret, but it's not that big a deal to post that publicly, like it's a bit bad, but it's not a huge deal. So I thought, oh, maybe it's not so bad. 
And then I, I didn't just give up there just because it wasn't in the page. I also, um, then I wanted to know if there was anything else hidden in the page. So I did the following thing, which I'm about to explain, which I swear is not an advanced hacking technique. I swear anyone can do this. You can probably do this right now while you're listening if you want to do. One of my favorite things to do. I do it all the time. <laughs> all the time. You know what I'm talking about. Exactly. Yeah. So all I did was I went to the page and I wanted to see the source code of the page. And the way I did that was by right-clicking with the mouse and clicking Inspect Element. That's all it does. And it pops up this little window which shows you the source code or the HTML of the page. Metaphorically, the source code of the page or the HTML is kind of like if you open up the bonnet of a car and look at the engine inside, it's just showing you how it works. That, that code or that information was already there on your computer. I didn't like download anything new. I just asked the computer to show it to me and the computer already had it inside it. So there's no like... What mm. I'm saying is this is not hacking. Yeah, and you haven't accessed any uh, information. It's just presenting information that was available to you in a different way. Exactly. It's just changing formats. That's a good way mm. of saying. And then there's a, there's a lot of information in there, way too much for me to look at. So I just searched it for the word passport. And it, then it was just there. The, there was just a passport number just there. And it had like Tony Abbott's name and birthday and everything. And, and I was like, is that a passport number? I don't really know what a passport number looks like. That's probably a passport number. Mm. Mm. Wow. So this is where things get a little bit terrifying. Yeah, this is where I began the Do Not Get Arrested Challenge 2020. And so <laughs> I... So also, as well, as well as the passport number, there was a phone number there and also, uh, like, weird Qantas staff comments about him, like saying, oh, hey, this person called from Japan and said to fast-track Mr. Abbott here and make sure he sits in this seat and stuff. And I was like, why is this here? Like, imagine logging into your... Qantas flight, and then they send you what the staff are saying about you. That doesn't really mm. make some surprises here. So then I wondered, then I had enough of trying to defend my country and wondered if I had done a crime. And so then I spent the next several months trying to sort out, trying to publish this blog post that I then later published. And step one was to figure out whether I had done a crime because I wasn't sure. Like it seemed fine, it seemed not illegal, but I'm not a lawyer and also. I know that when the other person is famous or the former prime minister, things can suddenly become crimes. So mm. uh, I didn't know if it was a big deal. Mm. And, and so I know people who know people who write laws. So yeah, that sounds bad. That's that's exactly it. So so in your in your months of working out whether you had committed a crime, how did how did that, how did that end up? Uh, it turned out I had committed a crime and I'm now in jail. No, that's not true. Um, that's not true at all. I talked to a bunch of lawyers and a lot of them didn't like. They were like, oh, hey, I'm a lawyer, but I don't really know anything about this computer stuff. I, only know, I don't know this computer law stuff. It's too new. It was really hard to find someone who did know about computers as well. Anyway, I, to skip a lot of boringness, I eventually talked to two lawyers who took, gave me advice. that It's definitely not legal advice, but they said, no, 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 that's not a crime. That's okay. And it was good to hear a lawyer say that, unofficially even. Mm. Uh, but it might sound like I'm being very cautious and very clever by checking with a lawyer first, but by the time I had asked a lawyer this, chronologically, I'd already emailed explicit details of exactly what I did to the Australian government, so it wasn't that clever. Uh, intentionally or unintentionally? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, intentionally, it was... I was Look, it wasn't, it's widely regarded as a bad move. I don't recommend it. But I wanted to report the problem as soon as possible because I know mm. that like it's important to be quick with like reporting these things because anyone could have seen that passport number, same as me. Mm. And so I asked my hacker friends how I could, where I'm supposed to report this, like how, who do I tell about this? And my friend told me to call 1300 Cyber One. 
that a phone number and I was like that's not that can't be real but it was and I absolutely called that phone number and they gave me the contact details for ASD which is like the Australian Signals Directorate they're the Australian version of NSA and I told them all about it and they said we'll take it from here kiddo don't worry about it thanks for reporting this and stuff we'll we'll handle it right good handball <laughs> so so I, I, I suppose this is something that um, is you know you, you you stumbled across in a sense um, did you attempt to reach out to I don't know like Qantas to advise them that this was in the back end of their website and then maybe they yes. should think about their stuff yes I did extremely attempt to reach out to exactly Qantas that's really convenient that you asked that and I wanted to exactly tell them about this, the bug, the bug being, oh, I, th- I, think I thought it was the bug, which was that maybe when you right-click inspect element, the page shouldn't have your passport number and phone number and all the staff comments about you in it. Uh, and so I told them about that back in like March or April and they said, we're on it. But then I didn't hear from, the, from that person for months and it was really hard to, it took them a long time to tell me they fixed it because, you know, Qantas was having a lot of struggles because a lot of their staff were being stood down because no one was flying, but also no one was, well, hardly anyone was flying. So the risk of people being hacked from this was much lower than usual. So I gave Qantas as much time as they needed to fix the bug. Mm. Did they, did they close that off and say, you know, ticket closed? Yeah, they, they told me it was fixed, but they couldn't tell me what they changed. And I also can't check whether it was fixed because I don't have a boarding pass right now anymore. Mm. Uh, I assume Teddy one doesn't work. I haven't tried it, but so Maybe they told me it's fixed, it. so it's fine. <laughs> well, I guess there's an untapped resource at good old hashtag boarding pass on Instagram where you could uh, go and retest the theory. Just a heads up to everyone in the world who's ever done hashtag boarding pass. I am actually deleting my boarding pass photos from social media as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> I think if it's an old boarding pass, it's six by end. Oh, you'd hope so. But That's true. So, 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 Alex, I guess, I guess the... Um, the takeaway from this, I mean, well, what was it? What was your takeaway from this? How how are we going in terms of our general? As someone who you know is an expert in these kind of security issues, where where are we falling over? What's 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 your what's your take on this? Uh, I mean, sort of takeaway that I learned. I, I wasn't like, well, I mean, the in terms of the security bug, I kind of wasn't that surprised. It kind of, it kind of took me a while to even think of like reporting it to Qantas because I mean I did quite quickly but that was just like oh but yeah that's just normal of course of course this company will uh, like put all this information into the page by accident that's just normal people just do that and but then I stopped and thought about it and was like no that's probably bad that probably shouldn't be that way Mm -hmm. and I think that the reason it's like I I don't know I'm speculating wildly but I think that often like security comes at a trade-off to sort of convenience or speed not always sometimes the most secure thing is the most convenient But in terms of like an airline, they want to sort of operate as fast as possible, right? And like uh, spend the least money to do everything as much like as quickly and efficiently as possible. And so this booking, this booking reference thing is sort of the key because it's your username and your password, right? Like they send it to you in your email and they, you know, they put it on your calendar and they send it to other people who fly with you. But it's also the thing that you use to prove you're you. And it's this way because I think you don't have to have an account to book a flight. You don't have to log in with an email address or a phone number or anything. You can just book a flight and your booking reference is your whole ID. And that's really convenient, but it's also easy to hack. Mm. Uh, if people are interested in kind of, I, I guess, the two sides of this, either um, you know, uh, investigating security flaws or um, I guess some of those uh, issues like convenience versus security, um, where should they go? What should they look at? 
you know, speak to the, the kind of 15-year-olds out there going, oh, that sounds like an interesting kind of cool job. Um, where could they learn more about this type of stuff? Oh, uh, I don't really know. A lot of the security people I know are very self-taught. Um, the way I learn things is by, well, as a generalization, by seeing how other people do it firsthand or like hearing other people's stories of like true true crimes but not crimes like true packs that are not crimes mm. uh there's this podcast called darknet diaries and i like to say the name of another podcast on your show i hope it's okay mm -hmm. and they talk about uh like exactly that they talk about like true hacking stories and they interview the people who have done them and stuff and i feel it kind of pick up a lot just from hearing once you hear lots of stories you see the parts that are sort of very similar between them all it seems like a, not necessarily a career, but it's, a, it's almost like a calling that um, I'm sure some people would um, be fascinated by. So um, super cool. Um, if you do have any more uh, adventures along those lines, we'd love to hear from them and, uh, and, and learn, learn more about them. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Alex, for uh, taking some time out of your evening to have a chat with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me on the show today. Indeed. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. And we're now excited to be having a chat with uh, author Joanna Leggett, um, who's been taking a bit of a look at uh, uh, Twitter in particular and has written a piece called The Twitter Mob, which is going to be out uh, in, I think, the October edition of Australian Book Review. Um, Joanna, thanks for joining us on the show tonight. How are you this evening? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Very well, thanks. Great. Um, so we're curious to know: Did uh, were you on the, um, the the end of a Twitter mob at all? Was that your entry to kind of writing this piece, or how did you come to sort of um, the topic? I guess that's a great question because, well, well, I was. I have been the victim of um, uh, like any working journalist, and particularly female journalist. I have actually been the victim of uh, Twitter mobs, uh, but that wasn't a, that wasn't actually the the main impetus. I was watching Twitter through the course of the pandemic and noticing just the increasing sort of, I guess, atmosphere of intolerance to divergent opinions, this, this sort of creeping censoriousness to the site. And I, and I think the final um, impetus was when I noticed the treatment that a, uh, Rachel Baxendale, who's a reporter for The Australian, received uh, in her questioning of Dan Andrews. And I spoke to the editor of Australian Book Review, Peter Rose, about how do we tackle this huge issue of cancel culture. So it really started there. But you're, yes, absolutely, I have been the victim of trolling, although I don't write about it in this piece because it is such a huge issue, cancel culture. So I kept myself out of it because there are uh, extremely high-profile um, cases and you don't have to look far to find examples. So... As I'm sure you're aware, Lee Sales is routinely, um, I, I would I would want to say tweeted at, but she's really trolled. And after she interviews male politicians, she's often, um, you know, opens up her Twitter feed to this whole stream of invective, and she routinely handles that by just retweeting it. So just plenty of examples to draw from in the Australian media. So I, no, I, I guess I guess we we we. Um see this a lot as as you say you know with people like Lee Sales and I, I, I think you could generously describe Twitter as a cesspit um, but <laughs> I, that's I, interesting yeah look I, I, it's, it, I, I, where do you think it's coming from? That's a really good question I mean and I think that's you're, you're not wrong in generously describing it as a cesspit a lot of people are saying that but I don't know and it, it, where, do, where does it come from? I think it's um 
I think there are so many forces at play, and I think it's really hard to identify one cause. But I think what amplifies it is uh, the current lockdown, where people are at home, uh, people are probably frustrated, and they, they sort of tend to... They've not got that connection and that context with another human being, and perhaps that's kind of, you know, really fueling it. But, you know, it's obviously cancer culture existed before the pandemic, so... Uh, it's really hard to know what, and I think that, you know, probably some research department and and there's definitely enough there to go on to really look at the antecedents and and what caused it. But I can tell you the effect, and and this is um, from my own observations, is it really does have an impact on the quality of writing. And that was my concern in um, in, and my real reason for writing the essay was looking at, well, how is this going to impact writers and what kind of – and their body of work? Uh, how is it going to impact the quality of journalism in Australia if you're concerned about being cancelled? And also fiction writers, because a lot of writers are on Twitter. So that was kind of, you know, the, the overarching concern was the impact on work. Uh, but, yeah, look, um, you know, you might have some ideas on where it comes from, but uh, it's certainly not a, not a great force that we're, we're, that we're reckoning with uh, at the moment. No, definitely. I suppose the, the, the cancel culture idea, as you, as you say, it's been around for a while, I suppose. Do you want to give a quick description for people who don't know what sure. cancel culture is? Uh, yeah. Because, yeah, I mean, you, you, you do see the, it thrown around a lot, but it kind of manifests itself in different ways. Absolutely. And, and look, in the um, ABRSA, there is, I do actually kind of go into some description about it because uh, it has, you can actually define it um, as a sort of a succession of events that happen to somebody. So uh, somebody uh, will put forward or propose a, a, an idea that is seen as, uh, I guess, um, radical or not acceptable. And uh, as a result, um, usually via Twitter, they are cancelled. So uh, a hashtag might start trending, cancel, so-and-so, uh, and they are inevitably forced off the site, uh, and then you sort of don't hear from them, um, and, and perhaps they come back depending on how severe the cancellation was. But really, it's a, it's a mob mentality, and that's what's really concerning of people who are deciding what ideas are acceptable and what ideas are not acceptable. And, uh, and it's, so, it's, it's so pervasive that people are even nervous to talk about cancel culture because they might be cancelled. So it's, it's become meta um, and deeply problematic. So uh, that's essentially what cancel culture is. It, it originally was called call-out culture, which I actually have less of a problem with because I don't think there's any problem with calling out people if you don't agree with things. What I have a problem with cancer culture is that it often involves the destruction of a person's career, reputation, because a group decided that that was correct. And it's irrelevant whether that person deserved that or not. So they're basically placing themselves as the judge and jury, which to me is just grossly unfair and dangerous. I suppose the uh, the idea that um, the cancel culture is is uh, a mob mentality and, a, and I guess a an unseen force is 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 there ever a, an instance where you can pinpoint the beginning of one of these movements or is it is it is it just a I suppose a, a, a kind of an amorphous blob? Yeah, I, I think it is quite. It, it is very hard to pinpoint. I think I think it's like anything. There's certain um, trends or beliefs that become modish at any point in time in history. So it becomes extremely fashionable for the left 
to subscribe to these values and the right to subscribe to that and a whole bunch of views in between. And I don't think that that's a problem. I don't think it's bad to identify with a community in real life. I, I just think the problem with, with cancer culture is that it takes those original ideas and it holds people to account in a way that is really destructive. So I guess it's, people haven't changed. It's just that now we have this problem of Twitter and, um, you know, Jack Dorsey, who's the CEO of Twitter, uh, has been promising reform on this front for, for many years. Um, in fact, since 2016, when the... Um, you know, uh, the huge tweeter, Donald Trump, was elected. Um, he promised that well, I'm going to make the site more palatable for the average person. So there's an awareness in Twitter HQ that the apparatus is not serving people. Um, and it's taking these ideas, like you said, it's these, these, it, it, it's these kind of uh, amorphous concepts and it's calcifying them and holding people um, to account if they fail to adhere to certain beliefs. And um, you know, it's, I think it's up to individual users to really, um, I guess, look at uh, their Twitter use and um, how engaged they wish to be. A- ab- absolutely, Joe. It's it's interesting. We're talking specifically around Twitter. Is it is is there a is there what aspect of Twitter makes it, I suppose, easier for this kind of stuff to happen, or, or does it happen on other platforms and we're just not as aware of it? Yeah, it's interesting. Well, I, I, I think it happens in other platforms, but to a lesser degree. So Twitter has. Uh, algorithms that really support cancel culture. So, uh, I mean, Facebook has a like button and so does Twitter, but it, it also comes down to the uh, the type of people, the demographic that use Twitter, and they, are, they skew professional uh, breaking news journalists, writers. Uh, so it's really, that gives a lot of opportunity for people to decide uh, in a creative field what what ideas are correct and what ideas are incorrect. So, uh, so Twitter's, um, I guess, audience gives it a, an, an interesting problem. But I also think just the, uh, you know, Twitter's capacity to retweet and um, to get a, a hashtag to trend. So there's been cases, and I can't think of any off the top of my head, but there was, there's been cases where people have, you know, quite um, viciously rallied to get um, their supporters to get to keep a hashtag trending so that somebody is cancelled or somebody is admonished and that ability to kind of like you know get your get your crew together in a virtual setting and get a hashtag to trend I can't I can't think of the a similar um, I guess representation of that or an iteration on Instagram. <laughs> Or Facebook, although I don't love either of those. But, you know, it doesn't, there's something about the schoolyard, there's something about Twitter's platform and the way it's structured, which appeals to that almost juvenile of emotions. And it's that schoolyard of mentality of, you know, you're out, this is the group, and these are the, this is, these are the sort of acceptable ideas. Absolutely. Joe, jo, you, you mentioned in um, the kind of release for, for the article um, that in, in the 2018 Troll Patrol study in uh, Amnesty International found that female journalists and female politicians in particular were subjected to some kind of harassment or abuse on Twitter every 30 seconds. And mm. women of colour in, experienced even higher levels of abuse overall. Have you got a view on why that might be the case? Or is it just straight-up misogyny? <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, I just think it just echoes 
um, the sexism and the patriarchal community that still exists in Australia and, and globally. So, I mean, women are always, um, you know, form part of the of a marginalised community, really, even though they they technically are not. Um, so, I think that they are they're going to get that kind of sexism. And uh, what was really interesting, actually, that I think sexism is something that is expressed by men and women, and that's something that Rachel. I interviewed her for the ABR piece, and she did mention that most of the people that trolled her and issued death threats, and it really was that serious, that that's how damaging this can be, were women. So women police other women, and um, that sexism is just carried over to Twitter. But really it's it's amplified because, uh, it, like any prejudice, it's dehumanising, and the platform enhances that experience of dehumanisation, which is what prejudice is based on. And that's why it makes it so easy to kind of take those existing prejudices and amplify them. Because if you can't see the person, then they can just become a problem to you, that you can just project all of your frustrations and prejudices onto. So that's why I think more really needs to be done uh, by the C-suite in Twitter, um, who essentially did have admitted on multiple occasions, not only did they need to fix things, but they really didn't know what Twitter was built for. They kind of did it on the fly. I think it, I think that you can tell that's very much the case. Absolutely. It seems like that they've been kind of in damage control about the content that other people place on their, on their platform for years now. Yeah. Um, Joe, jo, I suppose... In terms of, you know, wishful thinking that Twitter fix everything immediately, is there anything that that we as users can do, do you think, in terms of kind of limiting this? Yeah, absolutely. I I would actually argue that we should stop waiting for Twitter to do anything because they've had plenty of time and their algorithm tends to work for them. So I think there's a lot of that, you know, a lot of the right people coming out saying we have a commitment to retrofitting checks and balances, but we're not yet. We're yet to see it, um, and they're in a real bind because actually, through the pandemic, their usage has spiked. Their latest shareholder report indicated a, a huge lift in the pandemic as people are sitting around on Twitter. So the very things that create, um, I guess, higher levels of usage are the, are the sort of the really divisive um, issues. So they're really, it's actually not in their best financial interests. So. I would almost just give up on them because they haven't really displayed a willingness and and um, and they have done things on the fly and are clearly um, they've had the time and the, and, the, and the requisite checks and balances aren't there. So, I mean, it's really tough if you don't... But my advice would be if you don't need to be on Twitter, and I think you know if you do, then don't be on Twitter. It just, it, it's, you know, it is an addictive kind of... It, like any social media site, you can choose your engagement. I think people are seeing that with the, I don't, I'm sure you've seen the, um, the Social Dilemma uh, Netflix documentary, which is, yeah. you know, really kind of eye-opening for a lot of people. Um, so, you know, if you don't need to be on it, I, I don't know why you would. And I I, I probably don't, I, I don't do breaking news anymore, and I'm probably on it more than I should be. And, I've, and since I wrote uh, the essay, I've actually been really conscious of setting time limits. Like I say, okay, I'm getting on Twitter for two minutes to see what's breaking because that is the thing. That's why it is so powerful. You can actually get a real sense of what's 
breaking news faster than wire services. So, um, yeah, I think if you, you know, for breaking news journalists, for rounds journalists, where they have to be across things, it's a, it's a difficult bind. But if you don't need to be, like your mum doesn't need to be on Twitter, don't give your... Don't let your mum have a Twitter account. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that's that's a good advice for everyone. Joe, uh, thank you so much for your time. We've been speaking with uh, Joe Leggett on uh, her essay, The Twitter Mob, which is in the October issue of the Australian Book Review. Thank you so much for your time, Joe. You're welcome. Thank you. Ro, we've got some stuff coming up. A few little bits and pieces coming up. So um, Jennifer Ribeiro is the Chief Information Officer at City West Water and she's a guest speaker in a live webinar hosted by The Importance of Women in IT. Topic is putting people first in IT teams. That is on the 15th of October, 7.45am and tickets via Eventbrite. While we're poking around on the internet, last day of Triple R Radiothon, go to rrr.org.au and get merch, donate and sponsor. Oh, absolutely. We do love our subscribers. Uh, one day left at Radiothon. There are so many prizes and so many reasons this year. Now more than ever, we should be subscribing to Triple R to support our community radio. Warren. Uh, well, I just wanted to say thank you to our guests. It was great to chat with uh, Alex and also uh, Joanna. Um, thanks to our podcaster, uh, Yazan Safe, and also Dork's producer, Elizabeth McCartney. We have been by into it. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.